Please turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's in the New Testament toward the back of the Bible. If you're not quite clear where that's at, um, and if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew rack in front of you, a Bible there, and the page number is listed in the order of service within the bulletin. On the back side of the worship folder there is an outline that might find helpful to follow along as we go through our passage today, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We've been in a series going through these two letters from Paul, missionary church planter, to the group of believers that, uh, where he helped to start a church, and uh, getting near the end of this series. Now, even if you didn't pay much attention in literature class, and that might have been a long time ago for some of you, I don't know, uh, even if you didn't pay much attention in literature class, you know what makes a good story. First, you introduce the characters, and then uh, some kind of conflict between them that lasts most of the story, and then eventually those characters reach a final confrontation. And with that, the conflict is resolved, you reach the conclusion. We're all familiar with it because it's, it's in every Marvel superhero movie, it's the inevitable next chapter of the never-ending Star Wars saga, or those Hardy Boys books that were already old when I read them many years ago as a kid. Characters, conflict, final confrontation, conclusion. We know it's a formula, but we love it anyway, right? It's a good story. You can see it in the Bible, too. And, and, and many non-believing scholars will say, well, see, it just, it's just one more example of the, the formula that began in ancient mythology. But what if, what if what the Bible describes is the original story and the ultimate reality? And what if every other story borrows this plot line that resonates with each one of us so deeply because it is the destiny of history? This is where it's all going. That's what the Bible claims. Our passage today, Paul writes to the Christians like us, about the final confrontation, what happens right before and what ushers in the great conclusion, the happy ending. One day there will be one last evil villain, an arch nemesis that will be defeated by Jesus Christ when he returns. And unlike all those, you know, Hardy Boys books and Marvel movies, there will be no setup for the sequel. It's going to be the end. It's over. Relief and rest at last. Second Thessalonians 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. 
And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This is the word of the Lord. All of the stuff about the man of lawlessness usually gets the most attention, and understandably so. But I want to highlight another thread in this, uh, this woven all through this passage, uh, being deceived by what is false versus believing the truth. So, weaving that in, here's the theme for the sermon today. The coming of Christ will be the final confrontation of the great lie of man and the great truth of God. The coming of Christ will be the final confrontation of the great lie of man and the great truth of God. We'll do this in four parts. Part one, confusion. If we are unclear regarding Christ's return, we will be easily unsettled. So verses one through the beginning of verse three again. Let me just go ahead and read this to be clear about what we're talking about right now. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered t- together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. Uh, just hold there. The topic of Christ's return was a big deal to these Thessalonian believers. We saw Paul address it in two sections of his previous letter, 1 Thessalonians, and this is the second time that he uh, teaches about it in this second shorter letter. And it's never, never merely about doctrine or debates. It's practical. So think of back uh, chapter 4, uh, 1 Thessalonians. How will believers who have already died um, experience Christ's return? Or, or last week, what is our hope in spite of the persecution that we may suffer as Christians? These believers were hungry for hope, which also made them vulnerable to false teaching. See, because when you're, when you're grasping for anything that might give you answers, might give you peace, might give you hope, you might latch on to the wrong thing. And apparently there were some maybe in the church that claimed to have a vision or a prophecy from God, verse 2, a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us. What's crazier here, it seems that uh, Paul knows that they were getting letters that claimed to be from Paul, but were really fakes, forgeries. It seems to be what's going on because if you look at the end of the next chapter, so uh, if you you have to flip a page or not, but the end of chapter 3, 
The end of the letter, this letter, 2 Thessalonians 3, 17, says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. See, Paul would often dictate his letters to someone else who would do all the writing, and so they might not recognize Paul's handwriting. Paul's saying, hey, right now, this line that I'm reading, this, all this other stuff has been dictated. It's, somebody else wrote it. Right here, this verse, I'm writing this so that you'll have a, a sample of my handwriting to be able to compare it to some other letter that might claim to be for me. I mean, that, wow. The, I mean, who, who knew all this intrigue was going on in the, in the early church? Um, I'm happy that we don't have to worry today about forged letters, uh, though we may have similar kinds of deception to deal with. You know, you can find all kinds of teachers and preachers in print and online and on TV who who claim some unique insight or special anointing, and, and they sprinkle in just enough of God's Word to sound biblical when it's really just misinformation. It's really false teaching. Close enough to pass for the real thing, but counterfeit. Now, if you were with us last week, we heard Paul explain Christ's return, how Jesus brings final justice, repaying the persecutors and bringing relief to the persecuted. And and that sound teaching brings confidence and hope because there is a solid promise to hold on to. But back then, and still today, there's a lot of fear-mongering related to the return of Christ. Back then, it was a message uh, that the day of Christ had already come. I mean, that, that would instill some panic, wouldn't it? Um, today, that's not so much the message. Today, you can sell a lot of books by claiming to be able to interpret the signs. I cracked the Bible code. I, I figured it out. It's all going to happen uh, on the date that I say and, and read about it here. Uh, and what's the effect of that? That kind of fear-mongering that, that happens so often again and again, generation after generation, the effect is the same thing that we see here in the Thessalonians. They were, verse 2, quickly shaken in mind and alarmed. Christians unsettled and afraid. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But it happens when we're unclear or misled about the return of Christ. Now, because Christ has not yet returned, even still today, what Paul has to say next is still what we need to know so that we can stand firm instead of being unsettled and afraid. So let's keep going. So this is part two. Conceit. Before Christ comes, one final false Messiah puts himself in God's place. So verse 3 through the beginning of verse 8. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless lawless one will be revealed. Let me just stop there. 
This section would be a lot easier, don't you think, if we would have been there when Paul taught? He says, hey, don't, don't you remember that when I was still with you, I taught these things? And you know it is like, no, Paul, we, we missed that one. Uh, we don't remember. We don't know. Could you, could you, give us the, could you send us the notes? We would, we would like that. What, what we do know, which is what we have to work with, what we do know is that his expectation of the man of lawlessness goes back at least some 600 years to the prophet Daniel, which we looked at as a church earlier this year. Uh, Daniel um, chapters 7, 8, 11 talk about a ruthless ruler who put an end to uh, true worship and would claim to be God. And we said back in our study of Daniel that there was a partial fulfillment. There was something of an an initial fulfillment of that in uh, 167 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes or Antiochus IV, uh, a descendant of the Greek uh, empire and, and a ruler there. He was forbidding, with, in ruling over Palestine, ruling over Jerusalem, he uh, forbid the Jews from worshiping God. He set up an altar to Zeus in the Jewish temple, offered a pig as a sacrifice. This was a complete desecration of all that was sacred, all that was holy. But that was not the end of the story. Jesus said, now, Fast forward, you know, another 500 years or so. Jesus said there would be another ruthless ruler like that one. You can read about it in Matthew 24. It'd be a great uh, compliment to this passage to, to read what Jesus himself taught in Matthew 24, certainly what Paul had been bringing to them. And it came very close to happening again, not long after Jesus' uh, life on earth. In, in AD 40, that's when the Roman Emperor Caligula, if you know anything about that guy, you know he was crazy and nasty. Um, but Caligula, in his short span of rule, he announced plans to put an image of himself in the Jewish temple, making it a shrine to himself and those who would worship him. Thankfully, he was assassinated before he carried out that plan. But all this goes to show something that many Christians don't appreciate. We, we know something about this. There's going to be this, you know, Antichrist, this, this man of lawlessness, this, this figure coming. But we don't always appreciate that down through history, there have been many rulers, many who have fit this profile, and there will be one final ultimate example of this. So you see that even in this passage that we're in. Verse 7 says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Even as he says, There is coming a day, a future man of lawlessness yet to come. Or you hear this in the letters of John. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Or same book, Chapter 4, verse 3, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. There is a mystery of lawlessness, there is a spirit of Antichrist, and there is many Antichrists, and there is an Antichrist yet to come. There is a man of lawlessness yet to come. Uh, By the way, Antichrist, I've been throwing that term around, that that does not mean opposed to Christ as if, well, are you for Christ? No, I'm Antichrist, not not opposed to Christ, anti in the sense of a counterfeit or a substitute or something in the place of. So this is, Antichrist is a, whereas Jesus is the true king who comes claiming to be the son of God, and he is, Antichrist is the pseudo 
Son of God, the mock Messiah, the counterfeit Christ. He wants to be worshipped. He will demand that worship, and many who are deceived will give it willingly. Now, when you hold all that together, many antichrists down through history, one antichrist at the end, it, it kind of explains a lot. And when you think about it, you see why, why Christians down through the centuries have been eager, maybe sometimes too eager, to identify the Antichrist, pinning it on the Pope or the Hitler or, or whatever president that they don't like at that given time or some leader in a, a communist ruler or whatever, and this is the Antichrist. They're coming. Well, it's understandable because there have been many who fit the profile of the ruthless ruler who wants to set themselves up in the, as the highest position as a, in the place of God. Uh, and you can explain why we see it a lot, but we're often wrong. Well, there are many that fit the profile, but not quite the last one. We absolutely should have our eyes open to this danger, and we should be unsurprised when it happens again and again and again down through history. But let's get back to what Paul is explaining here. The return of Christ and the final judgment has not come yet. Certain things have to happen before that. And these things raise a lot of questions and conjecture among us who didn't get on his, you know, Paul's earlier lesson. Verse 7, the one who restrains the man of lawlessness. Who, who or what is that? The, the rebellion comes first in verse 3. Is that a falling away of believers that Jesus seems to describe? Uh, or, or is it simply another description of this treason of the Antichrist, this rebellion? And uh, you know, I can't cover all the possibilities here. I'm happy to have conversation with you uh, in my office or over coffee about, you know, how you understand this, and, and uh, we can go back and forth a little bit if you want. But we can talk about whether this implies that a future temple will be rebuilt or not, whether this is before or after the rapture described in First Thessalonians 4. Uh, I, but I, I just don't want us to miss what the bigger picture is that we have here. Uh, this, is, this is really important. Someday, this passage is saying someday this, the great conflict of human history will come to a head. The, the, the serpent's deception that began in the Garden of Eden, you can be like God. The great lie that man can take the place of God, which has been repeated over and over again by pharaohs and kings and Caesars and Führers on their thrones and by many lesser human beings who tried to run the show without God. The question is for us, is will you be deceived? Deceived into believing that you could be, that you deserve to be at the center of the universe, or deceived into giving your worship to anyone less than Jesus Christ. No matter how powerful or promising or persuasive that, that leader, that pseudo-savior might be. See, as the passage continues, Paul is clearly less concerned about uh, the Thessalonians being deceived about the timing of Jesus' return. He does not want them to be deceived by a false Messiah. That's, that's where it gets critical, which would have horrifying consequences for them. That's part three, consequences. Antichrist will be annihilated, all who believe his lie, will be condemned. Back to the text, verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. 
The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth, and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. Because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll stop there. Now, it's really easy to spend all your time studying this passage trying to fill in the gaps, the places where Paul didn't tell us everything that we would like to know. But do you see how little ink that Paul gives to the man of lawlessness? He tells us about his rise and what motivates him. He's opposing God, really any God, any religion. He's making himself the religion, making himself God. And then his rise and then his fall, Lord Jesus will kill him, bring to nothing when he comes. Bring to nothing. This is a guy who who says, hey, I'm something. I'm, in fact, I'm everything. Jesus brings him to nothing nothing. Erase him, eliminate him, take him out. No problem. And it's no problem for Jesus. He shows up, the breath of his mouth. He's gone. It's only after Paul describes his defeat, the defeat of Antichrist, that he goes on to explain more about how dangerous the rise of Antichrist will be for people, people like you and me, people all around us. The rise of Antichrist is positively satanic. He will come with, with a kind of supernatural power, signs and wonders, but they are, he says, clearly false signs and wonders with all wicked deception. So the, here's a little warning for us. Folks, we have to be careful not just to look for power, not just to look for even miracles. Those can be false. They can come from the wrong source. That's the power, miracles, that's not enough. That's not proof. You could be falling for a lie. So how do you make sure you're falling for, that you're following better, the right Messiah? It's actually not complicated. Verses 13 and 14, he said, you believed in the truth when you believed in the gospel. I'm concerned about you falling for what is false, being deceived, but you believed in the truth when you believed in the gospel. That means the gospel, the good news that has Jesus at the center. That's what, that's what he's talking about when he said people rejected. That's what they rejected when, verse 10, they refused to love the truth. Or verse 12, they did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, that's worth, that's worth us thinking about those, just the way he describes belief and unbelief there. It's worth checking ourselves here today. You might, you might have walked in today thinking to yourself, yes, I'm a believer, or you know, I, I don't know what I believe, whatever, however you came today. But do we think of the gospel as something of a, well, it's just kind of step-by-step instructions for getting eternal life? Or do we believe it as the truth about the, capital T, truth, about the only one who is worthy of worship, who is worthy of our devotion. This is a truth about Jesus Christ, a truth that is to be loved as we take pleasure in Christ rather than taking pleasure in sin. 
That's what the gospel is. And the question is, have, we, have you believed it? Do you love it? Do you love this? Do we see the good news as really good? Because it offers us the only person who is really good, the only one who is really worthy of worship, the only one who can save us and rescue us in our world. And we would gladly see him on the throne. We would gladly put him at the center of worship. We would gladly bow down before him because we're not, we can't, we can't be the center of the world. He is. He must be. And it's good when he is where he, he belongs and we are where we belong. That's when it's good for us. That's where we flourish. The warning here is that your actions, your appetites, yours, mine, reveal what we really love. Do we take pleasure in unrighteousness? You don't love the truth. It's not Jesus that's on the throne. If that's, you might say, well, yeah, I believe. I believe all that stuff that they taught me in Sunday school. I believe all that. And yet your life says you don't believe it. Because what you take pleasure in, what you love, is not the truth. You take pleasure in your sin. You've put yourself on his seat at the center of worship. So the warning here is that if you reject the gospel now, reject Jesus as Savior, you will be easy pickings for the lies of Antichrist, the deception of Satan. In fact, verses 11 and 12 says, God will hand you over to the lies of Satan about Antichrist since you rejected the truth of God about the real Christ. Now, some of us get worried about here getting hung up on God sending a delusion so that those who are, who are uh, committed to what was wrong will just go ahead and go, go that way. Well, uh, understand that God in his sovereignty is not keeping anyone out of heaven who wants to be there with him. Can I say that again? If, if God's sovereignty kind of confuses you, we don't have to answer all the questions. It's beyond doing. But let me just affirm, God is not keeping anyone out of heaven who wants to be there with him. Or as C.S. Lewis put it this way, there are only two kinds of people in the world in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, or those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. You follow that? Either we submit and surrender our lives. God, you're in charge. You're on the throne. I want my life to, 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 to go wherever you send me to do whatever you want me to do. Thy will be done. Or God says, thy will be done. Me meaning, okay, that's what you want? You want to go your own way? Go ahead. Thy will be done. You'll go your own way, and it will not be with me. Which one are you? Bowing the knee, thy will be done. I want to worship you. I want to live for you. I want to, I want to rejoice. I want to love the truth that says, Jesus, that Christ is all. I want, I want, to, I want to worship that truth. Or, or I want to say, I'm everything. God, you can kind of be a side character in this story. Thy will be done. Hell is the end for those who refuse to love the truth, but hell is not the end for those who believe the truth. Paul says, thank 
God. You are not condemned like those who did not believe. You are saved because you believed the truth in the gospel. Saved, he says in in these verses, chosen by the Father, made holy by the Spirit, destined for glory with the Son. That's who we are for believers. The glory that we said last week, the glory that we will give to him on that day when he is revealed, the glory that he will share with us when we celebrate uh, with him the victory that he has won, when he is triumphant, when he is indisputably enthroned forever. The great conflict the, of, of the great lie of man, the great truth of God, one day that conflict will be resolved at the great confrontation, and then it'll be over. Jesus will be clearly joyfully, indisputably on the throne. Folks, you, you and I might not be able to identify, decipher the identity of the Antichrist, and you, I know you will not be able to put a date on the calendar when Jesus will return. But if you know Jesus, if you know him, if you're trusting in the truth of the gospel, you've got nothing to worry about, he says. You should not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. And that takes us to our last part this morning. Confidence. Stand in the truth that you believed, trusting God to establish you. So picking up where we left off, verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself And God, our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Verse 15, first one I just read, uh, may sound like Paul is telling them to do two things. Stand firm and hold to the traditions. But it's really one thing. It's really one thing. Stand firm instead of being quickly shaken in mind. Stand firm by holding to the the traditions you were taught by us, not from what you got from those counterfeit letters from false prophets. Now, I wonder, how how do you react to the word traditions? Well, you know, I suppose singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game is in the seventh inning stretch of every ball game for 162 games. I suppose that's a fine tradition, but, you know, traditions... We don't like to be locked into old ways of doing things, and we, and we certainly don't want to. We don't want to look like our parents, and and uh, and I'm, I'm getting on the parent side of that thing more and more. You know, we don't want to do that. Like, oh, we just traditions. It's lame. Uh, Paul has a different way of what he means by this. Well, I mean, let me let me say something further. I mean, if, if we don't like tradition, traditions, we certainly don't like religious traditions, right? Because we remember, didn't Jesus, didn't, when, when, didn't he just roast the Pharisees about their uh, being bound by man-made traditions? True, yes. But that is precisely the, what's different here. Paul is not talking about slavishly following man-made traditions, mere customs, as opposed to obeying God's clear commands. No, tradition here simply means something that is passed down from one person to another, like the gospel. So, 1 Corinthians 15 says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He used the same language earlier in 1 Corinthians 11, which we read earlier in the service, talking about the practice of the Lord's Supper. For what I received, I also delivered to you, handed down from one believer to the other. And here he's saying the gospel is like that. The gospel is something I received and handed on to you. So the events of the gospel, Jesus' death, resurrection, were not improvised by Jesus. They were according to the scriptures, according to the sovereign plan and the declared purpose, saving purpose of God. And the gospel was not something that Paul invented. He, he didn't make up. It's what he received and he was faithful to deliver exactly what he had received so that the Corinthians and the Thessalonians and the Illinoisans could have the gospel. We've been, what we've been in, received, then we are entrusted with to faithfully pass on, pass on to the next generation, to pass on to others who do not yet know the good news. That's what he means by this, tra- this sense of tradition, holding fast to the tradition, not messing it up, not changing. We don't get to change the message. We don't get to change what, uh, what the Bible says. We don't get to change what Christians believe. Yeah, there are things that, there are customs and traditions that change all the time about how we do church. In the, at the human level, at the cultural level, but in terms of what God commands, these are things that have been handed to us and trusted to us. We pass on without changing, without messing with them. And so when he says here that the gospel is something that we've been now, that he's been received, that he's given us, the question is, will we stand firm and hold on to what we have been given, what we have received? what we haven't been entrusted with. And I, and I hope that as we read this, as we consider this in our moment in history, our place in the great relay race of life, that when the baton comes to us, that we say, I, I wanna, uh, we want to have a, a rising conviction and the courage for us to say that no matter what egomaniac rises in the next chapter of human history, to, to sit in Washington, D.C., or London, Paris, Jerusalem, Moscow, wherever, no matter what egomaniac rises in the next chapter of human history, we know who we are waiting for, and we are standing firm. I, I want us to have that conviction. I want us to say, yeah, yes, that's, that's where we want to be. But we've got to understand that that confidence cannot come simply from ourselves. We have to look for our strength in God. Do you see that? That's why the, the do this of verse 15 is followed by the blessing of verse 16 and 17. It's like verse 15 is do this, 16 and 17, and may God help you. May God help us. If I can paraphrase these last two verses further, may God who loves you and has given you his comfort and hope as a gift, may he make you stand and move forward in all that you do for him. Our good works by God's grace. Do you see that? That's where the confidence and the courage to stand comes from. It's got to come from God. I want us to be people of conviction, courage, but the strength, the confidence has to come from God. Uh, This is a story that I'm sure some of you have already heard. It's probably one of the most well-known parts of uh, the book, The Hiding Place. You know, Corey Ten Boom, uh, a 
who was, at the time of World War II, a young Christian woman living in Holland, and her Christian family hid Jews from the Nazis in their home at great personal risk. And one of the most famous passages of the story is not about that part exactly. It's about her looking back to an earlier time with her own father who is teaching her a lesson about trusting God. I mean, you can imagine the crisis of faith, crisis of, can can I really trust God when the forces of evil seem so powerful, so threatening? Can Can we trust God in this moment? And she remembered a time with her father when she was a little child and Corey, he said, when, when you and I go to Amsterdam, when do I give you your ticket? I sniffed a few times considering this. Why, just before we get on the train. Exactly, her father said. And our wise father in heaven knows when we're going to need things too. Don't run out ahead of him, Corey. When the time comes that some of us will have to die... You will look into your heart and find the strength you need just in time. Brothers and sisters, it's not about having all the answers about the Antichrist, about having all the answers for the future. Well, if I just knew how it all worked out and who, what the identity is and what the timing was and, and how it all fits together, then I could be confident. Then I could, then I could go forward. Uh, no, it's not about having all the answers. He's given us what we need. He's got, probably given us more than we pay attention to. So hear me say, yeah, study this. Know it. Get confidence from what God has told us that he wants us to know. But it is also, at the same time, not just about knowing everything about eschatology, about end times. It's about knowing just enough of what God says we need to know and then trusting him for the future. That's what it's about. It would be easier for us to be alarmed, to be quickly shaken, alarmed not only by false teaching, but by the rise of evil, the advance of lies, the coming of this final confrontation that we know is coming sooner or later. But instead of being alarmed, take comfort, take hope. We are not condemned, we are saved, we are loved. We are, we are weak, but he is strong. He is with us, and he's coming for us. Stand in the truth that you believed, trusting that God will establish you. He will make us stand. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us when we are troubled. Help us when we are fearful. Give us the confidence and courage we need that ultimately the cause of right and what is good will prevail. We don't don't know how long America will survive. We don't know how long Western civilization will go on. In one sense, that doesn't matter. What we do know what we take our hope in is that the kingdom of Christ shall prevail. And Lord, by your grace, you have welcomed us to be a part of it. By the gift of your son, the one who came first to die for our sins, the one who is coming again to reign victorious. Oh, let it be sooner than later. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.